Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Brown University's Institute for Media Innovation, Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs, Columbia's Book History Colloquium, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast features Cory Doctorow in conversation with Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia, Dennis Tennant. I'll bring you their entire discussion from the panel. So I write science fiction novels, and um, one of the most unfortunate things about the field of science fiction is that it's often mistaken, including by its practitioners, for a form of fortune telling. Uh, the, the science fiction writers are often styled as futurists. I'm I, uh, really... Uh, I really hate the idea that there is such a thing as a futurist and that science fiction writers in particular are predicting the future. Uh, one of my favorite moments in, in classical literature is in Dante, where he, uh, he shows you the pit that they keep the fortune tellers in in hell. And the fortune tellers, for having committed the sin of pretending they can look forward, have their heads twisted around 180 degrees on their necks so they can only look backwards. And they weep down their backs and the tears pool in the cracks of their asses as they wade through molten shit up to their thighs, being flogged by demons for all eternity. And I think, like, Dante let the fortune tellers off light. Because if there's one thing that's at counsel of despair, is that the future arrives on rails no matter what you do. Right? That the future is like knowable and therefore foreordained, and therefore are, we, we have no role in it. And um, I have a colleague who's a science fiction writer and historian, she's a kind of heterodox Renaissance historian uh, named Ada Palmer, who uh, edits, edits this uh, blog of Renaissance history that was anonymous until she got tenure because it was full of so many heterodox ideas. And uh, she does this amazing thing with her undergrads every year. They reenact uh, through um, a week-long live-action role-playing game, the election of the Medici's Pope. And every student is given a different role of a historic personage to play uh, in this. And they have intrigues, and they form alliances, and they stab each other in the back, and then you know, some gray smoke emerges, and you find out who the Pope is. And what's really interesting is that every year there's always a couple of people who are in the final four who are kind of the people who the great forces of history ordained would always have a chance of becoming Pope. Then there's always a couple who were never there before. And the lesson I think that, that Ada's trying to impart to her undergrads here is that um, the future, and hence the past, our, our lives and our world are this mix of the individual actions we take and the forces set in motion by the individual actions taken before us. And that in this iterated game that we play of, of acting on the world and trying to, to have, and, and then being acted on by the world, that ultimately it is human agency that shapes the world. And so the role that science fiction plays in my ideal world is as a warning or as an inspiration, but never as a prediction. Uh, And the reason that it can sometimes feel like science fiction is predicting something, uh, I think is twofold. One is that um, there are certain policy mistakes that we make around technology that take a long time to remediate. Like, computers have these underlying principles, sort of theoretical principles to them in, that are well understood in computer science and not well understood outside of it that often rub up against policy priorities. Like, all computers are what's called Turing complete. They can compute any program we can run. Importantly, no computer is almost Turing complete. We don't know how to make a computer that can run all the programs except for one that really upsets you, no matter how legitimately upset you are. And policymakers have a hard time grasping this nuance. Uh, it, it seems intuitively obvious, I think, that if you can make a computer do seven things, that you should be able to make it do six things. And actually, it turns out to be really hard to make it do Turing complete minus one things. And so every year from now until we figure this out, we will have policy fights in which someone will say, I have a legitimate problem that involves technology. And all of our problems are going to involve technology because technology is a thing that we use to do all of our stuff. And so there's always a technological nexus fix it by making a computer that doesn't run a program that upsets me. And there are goals that I are absolutely aligned with. Like, I think it's terrifying that computers can print guns. Uh, As a Canadian who then lived in the UK, guns scare the shit out of me. And it would be great if we could make that computer. We can't make that computer, right? We also can't make a computer that doesn't copy things that that infringe copyright. We can't make computers that can't be used to harass or convey uh, obscenity or whatever. Just to say that, that there's nothing we can do about any of these policy 
uh, priorities, but just that the answer can't be selectively breaking computers to attain them. And so if you write a novel as I did, Little Brother, that's about people spectacularly failing to come to grips with this underlying theoretical principle about technology, that novel will remain allegorical for a, a whole bunch of policy fights that we'll have in the future, uh, kind of in, in depressingly indefinitely. Uh, even though the, the novel is now, it's 12, 13 years since I first wrote it. So, so that, that turns out to be uh, a very useful policy inspiration uh, and policy intervention, even though it's not futuristic, and even, though, and, and even though it might look like it's predicting the future. The other thing that science fiction writers do that I think can, can appear futuristic is uh, this diagnostic thing, where you know, the analogy to this is if you go to the doctor with a sore throat, she'll swab your throat, rub what she finds on a petri dish, give it a couple of days and come back and look at what's growing in the petri dish to tell you something useful about your body. And the important thing about that petri dish is that it's not a faithful rendition of your body. It's, it's a, it's a selectively, uh, selectively uh, distorted model of your body where only one salient fact about your body is present in this, this microcosm, and that's the gunk in the back of your throat. And a science fiction writer can reach into the world and pluck a technology that's Im embedded in a matrix of complex phenomena, uh, other technologies, other priorities, you know, uh, social inertia, whatever, and they can build a, a world just around that one technology that, that is not meant to be a prediction or, or a simulation of what any realistic world might be, but which is unrealistic in this useful way that illuminates some of the underlying characteristics of the technology that are otherwise lost in the noise. And then as that technology ascends in its importance, and as we rub up against more of its limitations or pathologies or, or wonderful elements, um, those things come to the fore. So I wrote a book called Makers about 3D printing that just revolves around 3D printing and, and manufacturing and inequality and how those three things all rub up against each other. And 3D printing will never exist in a world with like three or four factors, right? It's going to exist in this big, complicated world with lots and lots of factors. But by writing that book, I was able to write something that continues to be cited even though it's also like a decade old as something that is useful to think about in, in terms of the present day. So for me, that, that's where science fiction fits in. It's, it's not as uh, a way to uh, predict the future, but as a way to intervene in the future, which is a, a much more human thing. The idea that, that humans have agency in the world and that what we do matters far more human than the idea that we are captive to great forces that we can act against. <laughs> Uh, you know, as, as I was reading and rereading your, your novels uh, and your nonfictional works yesterday, also, it was refreshing to, to remember that, that you're an unabashedly political writer, and a social writer, interested in sort of a vision of a social change. Um, so I was wondering, what do you see yourself as someone who is sort of on the side of a particular ideology, what that ideology is, and also who are your models for that sort of writing? So, you know, I think part of what motivates every writer is uh, kind of voyage of self-discovery. Uh, writers, I think, I, uh, the writers in my experience don't always know what's going to happen when they sit down. I mean, there's always there's always something that you learn about yourself. And I was raised in a very explicitly political context. My parents are, are Trotskyists, uh, and uh, you know, excuse me, my mom's a you know feminist organizer, and, uh, and so you know I grew up in that milieu. And uh, although I, I call myself a feminist, I don't call myself a Trotskyist, and I don't know where I fit kind of in that, in that complicated political <coughs> spectrum that is the left. And one of the things that being raised by Trotskyists will convince you of is that the fine distinctions matter. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no one a Trotskyist hates more than another Trotskyist who believes almost exactly the same things as them. So uh, I, it's, it's made me, I think, probably label shy. And one of the things I'm trying to play out in my books is, is where my politics lie. And particularly in the tension that I think is the, the, a big piece of the left-right tension, which is individual agency versus collective duty. And, uh, and where those two fit. I think that's a theme that arises a lot in my books. I've been very influenced lately by uh, a writer named Corey Robin, who wrote a book called uh, The Reactionary Mind. There's a new edition of it out. It's a history of writing thoughts since the French Revolution. And uh, he um, poses a, a, a nice way to kind of cleave the right from the left uh, that he says goes all the way back to the first reaction to the, to the post-French Revolutionary era, 
which is the belief that some people are better than others intrinsically, that there are superior people and inferior people. It's an idea that you know you find in the Republic too. It's not uh, obviously like it doesn't arise in the time of the French monarchy, but. He, he poses this as a way of thinking about the uniting factor that goes between, say, Christian dominionists who believe in the natural domination of men over women or parents over children, uh, the racist right who believe in the natural domination of uh, people who think that they are white, to use Tony Nancy Coates' phrase, and racialized people. Uh, it, it, it explains the sort of anti-union, Ayn Randian view that there are that there are takers and makers, or job creators, and and the people who work the jobs that were created by the by the atlases who sometimes shrug, and that you know this is the this is the thread that runs through that thought, and so I'm definitely against that thread, and I think that if you cleave the world on that axis of some people are, are just naturally better than others as opposed to the idea that we have a spectrum of abilities, each and every one of us, that fit together in unexpected ways that are highly situational. A kind of, you know, biological approach, right? Where there are niches and those niches are filled in different ways by different proclivities or different capabilities that produces these other outcomes that sometimes benefit some people and sometimes benefit others. As opposed to this, this that kind of uh, ascent of man graphic that's so misleading that it's like, first we were squirrels, and then we were monkeys, and then we were chimps, and then we were gorillas, and then we're Neanderthals, and now we're humans, and we have progressed up a nice even curve that you can see was leading towards its apex here with us, right? Uh, you know, that, that, that uh, if you believe in that, then you can kind of square up a collective duty to try and make things better for other people. And, and also the belief that individuals have proclivities that uniquely act in the world, but without having to ascribe a, a hierarchy to them and just say some things are more suitable than others at some times. Yeah, yeah well, I think definitely collective action is a theme in almost every one of your novels and the possibility of collective action. And what I appreciate is in, in your fictional world, we see the sort of the friction of collective action, the personal sort of uh, microdynamics of collective action, sort of the conflict that often comes with trying to organize uh, for political change in the scale. And, uh, what I also appreciated is that in, in the possibility of collective action, uh, the role of technological expertise plays a, a big part, but um, that technological expertise and organizational expertise is not equally distributed. Mm -hmm. It's not equally distributed along ethnic and racial lines, it's not uh, along class lines, along gender lines. And uh, uh, so, for example, Little Brother, you have this moment where I think Jolu is one of the, 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 he's a friend of the main protagonist, and he's a Latino uh, teenager, and he says, you know, it's great that you're doing this kind of rebel stuff, but like, the cops are not going to treat you the way they're going to treat me. You have, kind of, you, your possibility for collective action is very different uh -huh. than mine, and I really appreciate that moment in the novel where you draw attention to sort of the, the various possibilities and impossibilities of, of collective change. Yeah, and you know, I, I am a, a belief, like I have a sort of theory of technological change that goes like, you know, in a world where, where we have search engines, where we have knowledge sharing, where, where um, you have this kind of new way of making, which is this networked making, where I, I have a problem I want to solve, and my first step is finding someone who's almost solved that problem, or solved a similar problem. And my second step is failing to figure out how to make it suit my needs. And so my third step is asking questions in a forum. And then that leaves behind like a palimpsest that the next person who's trying to solve a problem that's adjacent to mine can go and consult. And this allows us to collaborate without knowing each other, without intentionally taking a step to collaborate. That in that world, that, that um, we, there, a given, given uh, enough time, given the leisure time to pursue uh, knowledge acquisition and skills acquisition, that skills, ac that skills can be much more widely distributed, that, that many of the barriers can, structural barriers can be eroded, and that it's like, it's not a thing that happens automatically, but it's a tool that we're given to work on that project with. And that even if you never t reconfigure or tweak the things that you use to suit you better, that just the ability to nominate the person who does that tweaking for you, who does alter the, the technological firmament on your behalf, is a very powerful force in the world, and it's, it, it can be contrasted with 
the current model, which is that you shout at Twitter and say, your moderation tools suck, help me not be harassed, and then hope they answer you. And instead, we can, we can do things like say, I'm gonna make a tool that I think will help people like me not be harassed, or I'm gonna find someone who can make that tool for me or with me, or I found someone who made a, who's made a tool and I think that tool might be better. So you, you, we democratize decision making about how to participate in our technologies. And one of the things I'm very worried about in an age of monopoly is that we're moving towards what I think of as a, a kind of constitutional monarchy model for technology. So, you know, in a constitutional monarchy, you acknowledge the divine right of kings, but then you have an aristocracy who puts limits on the on the unchecked power of the, the royalty and ask them to take on some social duties in addition to their power. And what we're moving towards is instead of saying anyone can interoperate with Twitter and Twitter can't sue them or put them out of business for having done it, and so collectives and individuals and corporations and whoever can all fight Twitter, we're saying to Twitter, Twitter, you now have all these new anti-harassment duties that put a floor under how small you can get and also mean that we can't let you get too porous. Right? If there are too many ways for people to kind of reach into Twitter and pull stuff out of Twitter and bend and spindle, spindle and, and fold it to their needs, then they might subvert the social role that we've given to Twitter or Facebook or Google. And, and what that does is it creates this whole like, constituency for preserving the primacy of the management of these companies in making decisions about what our technological future looks like. I think it's well-intentioned. I don't think people who are calling for this stuff are um, are doing so because they want to hand like they want to sell Twitter a cheap permanent internet domination license in the form of some anti-harassment duties, but uh, but that's what they're doing. And they're, and again, like back to the idea that you can write evergreen futuristic science fiction just by assuming that we'll misunderstand complex technological policy problems. You know. Uh, you know, another thing that really surprised me in a good way uh, in, in, in one of your works, and actually I, I haven't read this before, I don't read graphic novels uh, that much, but this is in real life that you, you wrote with Jan Wang, and without spoiling the plot, it's, it's about the girl gamer. Uh, and, you know, I kind of had my, my sort of, I, I thought I knew where the story is going, but it's about a North American girl gamer uh, who encounters uh, a Chinese gold farmer in a role-playing game. Uh, and, and sort of a lot of the tension in this book comes from the fact that this person who's dealing with her own sort of side of uh, her own uh, insecurities, her own kind of coming, coming into adulthood, and at the same time encountering this other culture that, that comes from a completely different political, socioeconomic context. So I really loved that moment of discovery. So I have like a serious and a not serious question. Sure, yeah. The not serious is, are you a gamer, Cory Doctor? Uh, you play role playing games, they appear all over your novels. So are you a gamer? And if you are, what how has being a gamer or being around gamer culture, how has it kind of influenced your fictional writing, so fiction world? I am literally gamer adjacent in that I sleep next to a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my, my wife used to play Quake for England and uh, is a games professional with long standing uh, started a 3D printed toy company and then ended up at Disney doing the uh, uh, VR and AR lab there. And so she has all of the consoles and the TV, and she plays the game. And I was a Warcraft widower for many years, and then I'm a Hearthstone widower, and, uh, and so on. So I'm a gamer in the sense that like it's impossible to have been born in 1971 and not spend a lot of time playing video games. But like I'm not a gamer, capital G, the way she is. Um, but you know, one of the nice things about living with a gamer is that you get to experience a lot of that that culture secondhand. I go to GBC and you know go to the dinner party she organizes. So. Um, you know, games have influenced my thinking a lot, uh, in part because um, I'm really interested in the democratic and anti-democratic possibilities of games uh, as little microcosms, you know. So on the one hand, like, um, most role-playing games are intrinsically um, authoritarian, but in a consensual way. So you choose your dungeon master, and the dungeon master chooses what happens, and your remedy if you don't like the dungeon master's choices is to stop playing but we don't get to take a vote on whether there are orcs, right? There are orcs if the dungeon master says that there are orcs. It's a bit like comedy, right? You get to choose who you go see on stage, but you don't get to choose when they tell you the punchline. If you think the shaggy dog story is too long, you don't get to fast forward to the, or you know, truncate the routine. Um, and so uh, that, on the one hand, is really interesting. But on the other hand, the thing that, that is true about tabletop RPGs, but also especially about the big MMOs, is that they're super collaborative. 
and they're really team-oriented. You know, the, the thing that Warcraft did that was so smart and daring was it started to create missions that couldn't be played individually and where the actual hardest part of the mission was coordinating 20 or 30 people and not just your schedules, but like a set of tactical goals where you have on the, on the one hand a bit of top-down uh, management where you can have a, a strategist who, or a tactician who is directing it, but on the other hand you have to have tons and tons of improvisation on the edges and it, it's, a, it's like a, I mean I'm not a football person, but it's a lot like what I imagine playing football is like where, where there's this combination of like individual agency and, and also smooth collaboration where you trust someone to be there to receive the ball when you pass it and then also high level tactics being dictated by a general and it's, it's really amazing to watch. I mean. You know, my wife played with an academic guild, mostly North Americans, and uh, she'd be up at three in the morning when we lived in London, playing these games in her tiny flat in her bedroom because there was nowhere else to play them. And so I, perforce, was uh, a uh, spectator to these 3 a.m. games and listening to her end of the team chat and watching these incredible games get played was wild. And now I'm a, a research affiliate at Media Lab, and the guy who runs Media Lab, Joey Ito, spent a long time you know, goofing around in Warcraft and writing amazing sort of semi-academic work about this dynamic and, and how it's a form of uh, human development and also, uh, uh, you know, creates all these other important skills and so on. And like the apotheosis of this is EVE Online and Spreadsheets in Space, you know, these games that are like literally just supply chain management, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's amazing. Well, I think it's again the, the and it, it, it it, that's the way it works in the novels, is these games uh, offer a possibility of collective action just by the virtue of being sort of efficient or uh, organizationally efficient. So somebody's LARPing and they create an event in the public space, but that event is very quickly grows into a demonstration or is perceived as a political demonstration by the authorities. So that's yeah, I mean, it's like the, the people in Belarus who went and ate ice cream in the, in the central square as a form of political protest, uh, you know, in part because they, they understood that the spectacle of arresting people for eating ice cream would, would bring ridicule to the, to the state. And then, you know, they followed that up with an event where they went and smiled in the central square and it created this impossible moment where you couldn't tell who was political and who wasn't because if you smile at someone the chances are they smile back and so determining who in the square was there to protest by smiling and who was just smiling back became this impossible uh, not to unpick. Of course the state figured it out by subjecting dissidents to electronic surveillance and just grabbing them all off and putting them in jail. So, you know, to tie back to the other element of my work. Yeah, I mean it's something that I'm trying to uh, advance on a scholarly front as well as just an understanding of communities that grow around games mm -hmm. and grow around fiction as well. So fan fiction communities, for example. We actually don't have, I mean, there are people who write in that space, sort of sociology of contemporary literature. Yeah, Jamie Ito, who's Joe Ito's sister. Uh, yeah, but very often they're outside of literary departments. They're yeah, very often in game studies or media studies. So I think there's, and there's so much yeah. work work to be done there. Uh, but since we're, since we're talking about sort of meta-literary stuff, I mean, one obvious point of your advocacy has been in uh, Creative Commons copyright and copy lefts and just free culture in general. Um, and one thing you do, people probably know, one thing you do is that you release your books often with Creative Commons license, allowing non-commercial sort of remix and re-sharing of your work. Now, I, I, I get the sort of, uh, maybe you want to say a few more words about what that means to you, but I'm super interested in this, whether, have people taken you up on remixing and sharing and republishing your work? Yeah, there's been a fair bit of that. No, one thing that you, I get a lot of is um, uh, beginning English learners uh, overseas who do translation. Uh, and, you know, we, we do that as a way of uh, improving their, their own English and also uh, as um, kind of creating social capital or, uh, uh, you know, becoming like someone who becomes an authority on, on a Western or English language uh, book that then uh, that, that uh, gives them some social capital in their peer group, you know, in the same way that like knowing about an obscure Japanese comic uh, or, or video might give you some, some social capital. The really exciting ones are the ones where it crosses over into politics, so the, 
Korean edition of Little Brother was read into the record as a filibuster by an opposition politician in the Korean parliament uh, during a fight over surveillance that uh, was part of a larger anti-corruption scandal that brought down the Korean government. So that was pretty cool. And then um, a bunch of people in the Persian diaspora translated Little Brother and circulated it over um, Telegram in Iran, not during the last election, but the one before. And the same thing happened with in Burma. So that was that was super exciting to see. And you know, importantly, it was stuff where the Creative Commons license was kind of adjacent to it. One of the things that I that was always a threat with Creative Commons was that it would become the um, the, the ceiling, or, the, or rather the floor on what people can do. Like if you don't have a CC license, you assume that you have no rights to use the work. Uh, and you know, the, the, the point of Creative Commons was to augment the universe of unpermitted, uh, or, or uses that could be made without permission. Um, and instead, it, it became, in many cases, uh, a kind of reinforcement to permission culture. Uh, and and so I'm always excited to see it either way, right? When when it's when it's through the CC license or when it's all on its own. Just through the fair use doctrine. Yeah, I think I really like this idea. I forget the the name of the club, but in England there's a club of people who they walk the public yeah. roadways. Ramblers. Ramblers. Yeah, they walk the easements just to ensure that it's continually that land continually remains in public use. Yeah, and I often feel that especially academics can do this work of ensuring that by quoting, by right, analyzing works, we kind of ensure that fair use is remaining without any special yeah. uh, sort of uh, uh, you know, dispensation from some, of, some central authority that holds licenses. And a wider range of limitations and exceptions, right? I mean, fair use is just the start, but then, then there's like archiving exceptions, transcoding for people with uh, sensory disabilities uh, or cognitive disabilities. There's um, you know, there's the de minimis, which I think is often like we, you know, oftentimes we, we start with fair use. We say like, is this fair or isn't it? We don't ask ourselves whether it's so small that copyright shouldn't trifle with it. You know, and that's that's a part of copyright doctrine. It doesn't get called up very often, and, and the courts have narrowed it. There was a shitty decision where they said two notes was not de minimis uh, in a sample. Um, but they didn't rule on whether it was fair. And on the basis of it not being de minimis, all samples have been licensed since, because nobody wants to ask whether it's fair use. Uh, but yeah, that, that whole spectrum of limitations and exceptions in copyright is withering on the vine, uh, uh, you know, and it's because of neglect. I think that the point about disability access is great, because I remember when the original Kindle reader, for example, would automatically screen read, yeah. and that got shut down because it now requires a separate audio license. But for the disability community, for the, the visually impaired, this was an important way to get at the content. And not just visually impaired people. I mean, the universe of people who, for whom uh, audio editions are, are assistive is quite large. I mean, there's tons of people with cognitive disabilities for whom audio editions are very important. But there's also people with physical disabilities, right? Like the like we take for granted the ability to turn a page, right? People with quadriplegia, or people with, who have other disabilities, people who are Parkinson's or who are amputees or whatever, often struggle to turn a page. And so it's one thing to call up a text and press play; it's another thing to to uh, have to continually interact with a small screen designed for people with fingers that and fine motor control. Right. Have you? I mean, as someone kind of to take this more broader, uh, this cro idea of a book existing as a, a cross-media platform. So, I mean, obviously, someone who has started or who is very active in writing for online, uh -huh. which includes you know visual and auditory kind of naturally. Uh, do you experiment much? I mean, with with sort of cross-media, like the the uh, cross-media sort of distribution of your work. So. Uh, I am a, a prose novelist, right? A prose writer. Uh, so I'm not a very visual person. I'm, I'm like, I'm slightly face blind. I often mistake people who look a little similar or similar haircuts for each other. Two aunts, I couldn't tell apart until they were like 13. So, you know, I, I've written some graphic novel scripts, but the art direction in those scripts is pretty minimal. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that the aesthetic effect of prose is extremely distinctive relative to other storytelling media, because so much of it is about uh, an internal monologue, right? Like I sometimes say all novels are science fiction because they all pretend that one person can know what another person is thinking, which is a thing that's never happened in the history of the human race. No one's ever known what anyone else was thinking ever in the whole history of our species, right? And 
making that work in other media, like it's it's tough, right? You know, in, in film you end up with like uh, voiceover monologues, which are the cheapest, shittiest gimmick ever. Uh, although I said that once in a panel with Chuck Palahniuk, and then I realized that that's how Fight Club works, and I I like that movie, and I felt terrible. But but it's the fact that there are so few movies for which it works kind of tells you everything you need to know, and so. You know, I think I'm good at writing novels, and I don't know a whole ton about about stage acting or. or but I was thinking, even on the distribution side, so, so distributing your work in audio format, or how, how sure. does that? Can you give us a glimpse of how that works from an author's side? Yeah. So normally, it's out of the author's hands for the most part. You know, authors are are um, they license those rights, and then they're done. There are a few exceptions. There's a wonderful science fiction and fantasy writer named Mary Robin Cole, who's also a voice actor and puppeteer. She worked on uh, Sesame Street and stuff. Mm -hmm. And she is not only someone who does a lot of audiobook narration for the publishers, but she narrates her own audiobooks. Neil Gaiman's another example of that. Stephen King has done some of that. Um, and it's exciting. I like reading my work. I podcast some of my work, and I've, I've read some of my work in audiobook form. Uh, but usually you just license that right out and then you get an audiobook edition, often one with a bunch of mistakes that you wish you could correct and that are, can't be corrected. I have a short story where Cthulhu is pronounced throughout as Chulu, which was like a really unfortunate shitty bit of direction. But uh, I have had the dubious fortune to um, boycott Audible because everything they, they produce has digital rights management on it, and they won't let authors opt out of it. I won't allow my work to be distributed with that kind of encumbrance. Digital rights management is when a thing is locked so it only plays on one company's devices. And I just think that's, like, as a matter of policy, really terrible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy a book if I could only shelve it in an Ikea bookcase or sit in a Walmart chair, so why should I accept an audio book that only play on a device that Amazon is blessed? And uh, what that meant was that Random House Ralphie, who were my audiobook publishers, and there were a few publishers who would take me Blackstone and so on, but they didn't want to spend a lot of money on, on the production, and they weren't of the quality that I wanted, and so I just started paying for my own audiobook production and selling them everywhere except Audible. Um, so I've done three books that way. Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, which Will Wheaton narrated. Um, Homeland, which Will Wheaton also narrated. And then the third one was Walkaway, which, was, which had a, a cast of narrators. Will was part of it, but also Amber Benson and Buffy, and Amanda Palmer, who's from Dresden Dolls, and wrote the introduction to Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. Uh, and it was really fun uh, to be in the studio when those were recorded. One of the cool things about living in LA is that I have a local recording studio, and I you know, drive over there on days when we're recording. We're recording next week for a uh, new book that's coming out in March. And I sit there with the narrators, and um, I have an open chat window to the director. And the director makes the call about when to interrupt them and say, I think that line could be read again, or they do it as a pickup later. She's kind of got a sense of their flow. But I, uh, I will say that word was mispronounced, or that line could use a different reading. And we just, we just kind of bookmark them all, and then we go through, and I oversee the, the rereads, or sometimes we interrupt, or sometimes they'll ask me a question, which is really exciting. And, and to be able to intervene that way and say, no, 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 here's what that meant. Especially when you're dealing with kind of an esoteric or technical vocabulary or there's a lot of neologisms, it's nice to have them be read aloud the way you thought of them. And of course, it's a two-way street because the thing that a good voice actor does is eliminates elements of your text that you didn't know were there. Uh, you know, I, I don't know to what extent this is this is appreciated by people who study literature, but I think authors are uniquely poorly suited to talk about their own works and probably other people's works too. They're pretty disjoint skill sets. You know, Ray Bradbury went to his grave swearing Fahrenheit 451 was a novel about uh, the evils of television. It had nothing to do with censorship. So you know, it's nice to be it's nice to be exposed to people who have smart ideas about my books that are smarter than I ideas about my books, uh, particularly when they can express them in like dramatic readings. Well, I, I think there's there's sort of there's literary scholars who work on the materiality of reading who are I think more sensitive to the book as well. You meet some of them in the in the book uh, in uh, uh, in the book the materiality of book uh, form that you're speaking tomorrow, right? Yeah. You meet people who are interested in the book as an object, right? And I think the way it translates sort of electronically and sort of my work, for example, is to just to think that well, you know, you just you're not reading just the text. There's this the depth of the platform underneath, sure. where certain elements of censorship, surveillance, and so other things creep into the text that the author may have yeah, no, yeah, sure. no clue about. And that, that, that becomes part of the interpretive process. 
Uh, and I think there are also people who are interested in sociology of literature proper, who study the changing markets, changing sort of shape of the books sort of, uh, on that level, for sure. that level as well. Um, yeah, well, since we're on, we on censorship and, and surveillance, that is a huge part of your work in almost everything you do. You know, I was also struck how in reading your novels, you always have these asides where you kind of like do the job of like explaining technology and almost like training people or getting people curious to look things up. Um, so, so that's that's always that's always a theme in your work. I was wondering whether you know whether your thought about the possibility of social change through this through technological training through sort of self you know through making through self education. Have you have you thoughts about it changed from you know from little brother to to walk away? How you know that's that's over a decade of sort of uh, engagement with that with that topic. How has your thoughts sort of changed more, or has it stayed the same? Um. So I guess the thing that's changed is um, uh, the way that I think about um, the four forces that act on the world, and Larry Lessig's idea of the four forces of code and law and norms and markets, what's technically possible, what's legally allowed, what's socially acceptable, and what's profitable. And, and um, how to choose which one of those you use when you're trying to change the world. So this is both like how I plot my books and also how I think about campaigns that I work on. And um, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a really bad parallel partner. And I spend a lot of time backing and filling and backing and filling. When you're doing that, you're trying to create just a little bit more room in one direction so you can wiggle in that way. But not because that's where you're going, but because that might allow you to have a little more room when you back up in the other direction, which will give you enough. And eventually, you kind of shuffle your way in by creating these little bits of space. And, and I think about the choice of like, when to make a tool, or when a business might be able to help, or when a legal intervention might help, or when you should have a discussion with people about what's socially acceptable and what isn't. You know, like, is inviting a friend to a party on Facebook the contemporary equivalent of making them sit around you while you smoke? You know, like, um, to, to, to enjoy the social moment, you have to subject yourself to harm. You know, like, like those, those kinds of interventions, I think of as, like, not having uh, intrinsic superiority or inferiority, but rather suitability. Right, and so like sometimes there's a space that you can fill with a technology, and uh, that technology might give you the space to pass a law, and that law might give you the space to for someone to start a business that will create a constituency, and that that constituency might come up with a normative uh, belief in the rightness of the activity that the business enables, which might give you space to make another tool. And in particular, I think the thing that, that has really matured in both my approach to my work and policy questions is what the role of technology is in fighting against autocracy and totalitarianism. Uh, I think that we have often posed technology as the answer to totalitarianism in a kind of successionist way. Like, given enough cryptography, we will be able to keep secrets from states and therefore states' ability to exert pressure on us will be limited and we'll be able to exercise more autonomy in autocratic systems where the state is unjust. And I think that you know, the, the lesson of many years of people being arrested and tortured for their passwords is that that doesn't work, right? That, that the, the state's capacity to uh, lay claim to your physical body and to subject your physical body or the people, the bodies of people you love to physical coercion puts a limit on to cryptography that is not a non-technical limit. Yes, we can encipher things so well that if all the hydrogen atoms in the universe were computers and all they did was try and guess the key, we run out of universe before we run out of possible keys for them to guess. But you don't need to guess the key. You can just beat the key out of someone. Or you can assume that everyone who has a secret is guilty. Right? One of the revelations uh, from the Snowden leaks is that um, the deep packet inspection rules that the Five Eyes powers use, the surveillance apparatus uses, is that if you ever search for how to use the Tor browser or how to use uh, um, uh, Onion Router or uh, Tails, the operating system, the, the secure operating system, that everything you post thereafter is subjected, to, or, or that you communicate thereafter is subjected to indefinite retention. So they harvest everything you ever post including all the unencrypted communications you have with people who don't know how to use those systems, 
and they use that to infer all the facts of your life because it's only a minority of the people you correspond with have an encrypted channel and everyone else is talking in the clear. And so all that crypto can do, all the technology can do, is it can open up a, a, a space, not a permanent space and not necessarily a big one, where no space was present before in the political realm. And that's the, that space we, is the space we use to advocate for uh, responsive, legitimate states that are governed by the consent of the governed, because otherwise, someone just rounds you up and hits you with a rubber hose until you tell them to get your keys, right? So like, we can, get, we can get something where we had nothing before, but what we don't get is to substitute the political process for a technical one. And I think that's like that's been my, my biggest change. I mean, I always had a sense that politics were important alongside technology, but I think that it, you know, maybe my youthful optimism, I wondered if we could just make politics go away. Well, there was a moment in, in kind of early 2000s where it seemed that so there was an arms race between sort of do-it-yourself uh, hacker culture, which seemed to kind of be slightly ahead of the uh, official you know, state-run sort of ability to, to surveil and censor, but, but it's clear now that the arms race kind of, that, that imbalance did not last for too long. Well, and the rhetoric of the spy agencies, especially back then, was that crypto was unbreakable and would, would render them useless, which is why we had to ban it now. I think a lot of people believed what they were told. Right. I think we're getting, it's time for q and <laughs> Yeah, so let's, yeah, I think that's, yeah, let's open up. If we can alternate between people identify as women or non-binary people Yeah. So I'm curious about sort of what you think about the role of race in science fiction, especially because a lot of um, like the history of science fiction, especially if you look at like H.G. Wells and all that, were very much rooted in xenophobia and sort of both like the opening up of science fiction as a genre to um, women, minorities, LGBTQ people as well as the resistance to that, and just sort of what you think and what you think. Yeah, it's really interesting to watch it, right? Because like, there's also this weird uh, um, way in which science fiction seems to have incubated a lot of our most toxic, like, wider culture oppression. So like, before there was Gamergate, there was this thing called the Sad Puppies, and they were uh, misogynist white supremacists who were angry that science fiction ceased to be about white dudes making the world a better place. Uh, and who formed a collective to gain the Hugo Awards and make sure that the ballot was just full of racist books uh, and books by white dudes. And um, they became this, the core of Gamergate, who became the, the core of R. the Donald, who became like the shock troops of the Donald Trump election. Now, I, I, I don't think that they're like, I think that they're bellwethers. I don't think that they're leakers. Like, I met these guys. They're not smart enough to be leakers, right? They're just like, they were just an early warning sign. Um, and so it is interesting to think that like science fiction is a place where the one thing that it does accurately predict is toxic masculinity, you know, long before it breaches into the wider culture. That that is a that is a like a completely weird phenomenon that I don't entirely understand. We had a really good panel this year at the World Science Fiction Convention on um, class and science fiction, and uh, particularly the the absence of laborers and organized labor from early science fiction, even though it was set against the backdrop of a world where organized labor was a really big piece of the, of the um, daily experience people. You know, newspapers would have had uh, a labor reporter, for example, in those days. And this guy, Eric Flint, who's a labor organizer, who's also a science fiction writer, uh, talked about that, uh, that the engineering traits, the post-war engineering traits made the backbone of science fiction as being uh, one of the first instances in which um, people from working class backgrounds found themselves in a seller's market for their labor, where trade unions weren't as important to getting a, a, a good deal out of science fiction. And so if you think of science fiction as being a literature that was made up of people who, who were living in this weird temporary bubble where collective action wasn't needed to ensure superior working conditions and compensation, for workers from working class background, that that maybe that explains it. Um, and those people have a kind of were were prone because of the moment that they lived in to a very individualistic view of where progress comes from. Right? They they 
you know, in that like completely understandable way, uh, didn't want to attribute their success to luck, being in the right place at the right time. They wanted to attribute their success to pluck. And you know, that I think foments the idea that anyone who isn't doing well has been selected by the great forces of history to be punished for their lack of moral uh, fire. They're just not, if they could pull themselves up by their big stretch. I mean, you, obviously this is like a widely understood phenomenon in the rest of the world. Science fiction, it, it's, as a literature, is really changing. It's changing editorially and it's changing in terms of its readership and it's bifurcating into a much, into a very gray, very white, very male-dominated old guard, and you, you see them at the World Science Fiction Convention, like there are a lot more, you know, for example, scooters, mobility scooters at the World Science Fiction Convention than was 20 years ago. But then the other wing of science fiction are mostly young women, also young men, who came up out of comics fandom, a lot of them, manga fandom, media fandom, they're way more comfortable with, with sexuality, they have an intersectional analysis, they're way more likely to be people of color, uh, and they're way, way, way more likely to be female. The kind of reading for pleasure uh, cohort, as like booksellers and librarians will tell you, is overwhelmingly young and female. Uh, you know, they're, they're really like their group. One of the interesting things that Eric said at this panel about the working class in science fiction is that, the, is that other pulp literatures, westerns and romances, were much more working class than science fiction was. Science fiction was a literature for a virgin middle class. And also happen to be two literatures that are to this day looked down on as less than science fiction, not serious, and so on. I was just going to say a little bit more about the, um, the connection between the rise of the graphic novel and how it's affected with science fiction. Yeah, I, I mean it's a hard it's a hard thing to, to pin your put your finger on. I don't I don't know exactly what happened. I mean on the one hand we got this winner take all market, DC Marvel just you know blew up, got bought up by much bigger media companies, continue to blow up. Now now DC is part of AT&T, I mean that's weird, you know. Uh, but at the same time, something happened that created access to these uh, overseas graphic traditions, the French Ben Dessinée, which you know maybe like the, the first wave of it was like Something like Tintin, Asterix, and Heavy Metal, uh, which you know, super different literatures, but like, but but spark people's interest. And then the other big piece was Japanese media, and I wonder how much of that was like the VCR, uh, the which made it possible to move that stuff around. Although you know, you had the PAL and TSC problem, but but I knew anime fans who had a whole PAL setup. Mm -hmm. So they could watch overseas media on their on their devices, uh, and then the internet, and the internet seems to have like supercharged that kind of global fandom. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know the best example I've ever seen of that was a couple of years ago here at New York Comic Con. The Romanian uh, cultural attaché paid to bring over a bunch of Romanian otachi, which is Romanian for otaku, and uh, the otachi were, uh, so they speak Romanian, which is close enough to French that they could all read French, and they were all reading French comics. Because they were internet kids, they all spoke some Japanese, read some Japanese, and read Japanese comics. Because they were 20th century kids, they, 21st century kids, they all spoke some English, too, and read American comics. And panel by panel, these Romanian comics would change drawing style and language and alphabet to express different emotional and action nuance that could not be, like, this was a very, it was a very French fight scene, and so it all looks like heavy metal, and it's written in French. And then, like, then we move into some, like, J-horror style, like, tentacly stuff, and so we switch to this, like, super manga style, and now it's in kanji. Like, it was, it was no shit the weirdest thing I've ever read, and, you know, no one else has, like, produced anything that's, like, that blended and global, but it's pretty blended and global. Like, there's still a pretty blended global thing going on in the world with graphic storytelling, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think Scott McCloud would be better posed to answer that question than me. He really knows, like, what happened in the 
to the comics. I, uh, I was on the sidelines. I went to a science fiction bookstore across the street from the comics store, so I would go in and buy the things that the clerks that recommended. But like, I didn't have the, I wasn't conversant with it the way I was with, with science fiction. Yeah, I, I apologize. We I got her a little late. Okay. Most of the building. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's the first time. Uh, uh, the uh, little brother is the first of your books that I read, uh -huh. and, and it's, I'm an information security professional, and I really enjoyed the book. But one of the things that stayed with me, and the reason I keep referring it to other people, is the supplemental material that goes with it. The young adult study guides that came out when yeah. it was published. The supplemental materials on how to use PGP, how to securely communicate. Did, when you envisioned the book, did you see the totality of that approach, or did that just develop? No, I, I did. I mean, part because I've been working with the FF uh, at that point, and we have tried with middling success to get people interested in that. I mean, there's an assumption, I think, with uh, particularly with like secure communications tools, that there's like a baseline of how complex and necessary they have to be. And uh, I think that, like, in part, there it is hard to do security right. There's this kind of like you're doing it up to your you're un, as the um, person who's trying to remain secure from an adversary. You're playing a non-iterated game. They're playing an iterated game. They get to try to break lots of different people's security. They do it full time. It's your it's the thing that you do part time. I mean, it's just like trying to defend your house from a burglar or a housebreaker, right? I mean, they, they have all the time in the world to learn about which home security systems work and don't work. You've got 20 minutes to make a decision and install it. They're much more likely to get it right. You just have to make one mistake. They just have to find one mistake you made, right? And so there is that asymmetry. But at the same time, I think understanding why you would want a privacy tool or a secure communications tool was itself a highly technical question until pretty recently. Like just appreciating what it would mean to have someone store a lot of your communications and then mine them for identity theft or mine them for political manipulation and so on. It required a high degree, just to imagine that attack, required a high degree of technological knowledge that was not widely distributed. And so perforce all the tools that were made for people who wanted privacy assume that you were already very technical. Uh, because only the technical people cared about it. In the same way that, like, up until desktop publishing, all typesetting software assumed you were a typesetter, right? And, like, just like the desktop publishing software, a lot of what we thought of as, like, esoteric specialized knowledge that you had to be trained for was actually something that you could reduce with user interface elements to something that could be broadly accessible. Um, and there remains a kind of, like, irreducible core of stuff that you have to know about design and typesetting to make beautiful type. But to go beyond like a mimeographed typewritten sheet, like you don't need a whole ton of expertise. You can really benefit from desktop publishing in the same way where as people are coming to understand why they should care about electronic privacy and, and secure communications and the integrity of their communications, uh, the number of people who would benefit from a simpler interface is growing. And as a result, people are moving to create those simpler interfaces. They're assuming a much more lay understanding in their, in their user base. One of the things that writing fiction can do is convey what the potential risks are of failing to have good security when you are, when you are using electronic media. Uh, and so that kind of becomes a way to kickstart this, this virtuous cycle of making interfaces simpler, attracting more users who demand simpler interfaces, and so on, and you kind of get this ladder rinse repeat. And then people move towards the middle, right? In the same way that like when desktop publishing software started, nobody knew what the word font meant. And now you can just say, like, choose a font, and everybody understands what that means. And even just the like the number of people who know what a serif is, you know, has increased by like orders of magnitude. So the the it's not just that people of less and less technical expertise understand why they want privacy tools. It's also that the technical expertise of the average person increases as privacy tools penetrate more deeply. And so that's the other piece of the virtuous cycle that you get when you think about fiction. Like my, my original pitch was I wanted something that was like Encyclopedia Brown, you know, meets Wikipedia. Like I called it Wikipedia Brown for a while. Yeah. So um, I'm a writer for a student publication, and yeah. I was wondering how you feel like your career in journalism has influenced your prose writing, and how your prose writing has influenced your journalism. 
Yeah, so, you know, I think that, like, the, the uh, place where all of those intersect is in blogging, uh, which is not a word people use a lot anymore. Uh, there was a time when it felt very futuristic as opposed to retro to say blogging. Uh, and for me, what blogging is, is like, especially in 2018, it's a way to not let the news get on top of you, but to stay on top of the news. So like, as we kind of move through the world, our, all of these fragments kind of fly over our transom. And, and they all seem interesting, but they lack a lot of context, and uh, they can feel really overwhelming. And what um, blogging does is like, for me, I sit down and I set in some time to think about everything that is battering at the door, and I let it all in, and I think about each piece, and I think about what it is that snagged my attention with it, and um, I write it up for uh, a, an audience of strangers. So I think that lots of people have taken notes on the news or whatever, kept commonplace books, but a, a public, by default, commonplace book imposes a rigor that you can get away with, uh, with skipping when you're making notes for yourself. I've often made notes for myself that I couldn't make heads or tail of later, when you make notes for a third party, you have to really clarify the, the thing in your mind before you can write it up for someone else to understand it. And that's uh, really powerfully mnemonic. So not only do I get like a searchable database of all the things that cross my threshold that seem like fragments of a bigger story, but they also become like a kind of super-saturated, subconscious solution of fragmentary ideas. And every now and again, two or more of them will rub together and like nucleate and crystallize, uh, and what crystallizes out of that is sometimes journalism, and sometimes um, a, uh, uh, an essay, and sometimes a story, and sometimes a novel, and sometimes a speech. And you know, they revolve around the things that I find aesthetically important, and they revolve around the things that I find politically important, and they, they often cross both of those realms. Um, Certainly, like daily writing of any kind makes writing a lot easier. Like the best advice I didn't pay attention to when I was starting out as a writer was to write every day. I thought it was like taking an hour of aerobic exercise and eating five helpings of vegetables every day. Like it's it's idealistic advice for people who have a staff who sort that shit out for them. And it actually turns out that like anything you do every day becomes a habit. And so you know, I have a ten-year-old and. I remember when toothbrushing was not a habit for her, and it was a thing that we really had to like make her do. And you know, at a certain point, it just became a thing that happened automatically. And you know, I assume you brushed your teeth this morning. You probably can't remember in any detail what that was like, but it just happened. That's what writing is like if you write every day. And journalism is a very good way to write every day. It really kind of it, it brings you a lot of practice. And then in terms of where the journalism intersects with. Uh, novel writing, one of the things that having a beat, even if it's a beat you assign to yourself as a journalist does, is it makes you want to uh, refine the way you talk about or introduce a subject. Because if you're on a beat, if you're covering a breaking story or an unfolding story, then you have to do a certain amount of background for every article you write about it. Because you can't assume that the reader has already read the 20 pieces you wrote about it before. And the act of having to summarize it and bring people up to speed really quickly actually like imparts a kind of compactness and and real elegance even in how you express the idea. And that also leaks over into fiction. Yeah. Um, so I'm a really uh, big theme park fan. And yeah. I love your novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, sure. um, and I was wondering if you could, I'm interested in your thoughts on the future of theme parks and how technology and you mentioned virtual reality yeah, sure. um, is how you think that's going to evolve and change for the future. Yeah, so I actually just did working in Imagineering too and, and was involved in some futuristic theme park design ideas and stuff. And I think that like um, if there's a crisis of theme parks, it's like it's twofold. So one is that we're in the middle of this inequality crisis and so just a group of people with um, income to spend uh, on very elaborate experiences is getting larger and more demanding and chased after more. And you see this in theme parks everywhere that the upsells have gone completely bananas. Mm -hmm. And the corollary of that, it's like aviation, is no one's going to buy business if coach is comfortable. And so you have to, like, part of the point is to make coach a bit shitty. And you can see this also in the theme park experience that your basic entry ticket is not great. Um, and also the, 
only way to make a basic entry ticket really work for you is to build up a body of esoteric theme park knowledge about like how fast passes work and like what time to go and stay in which queue and what time the three o'clock parade is when you're standing in fantasy land and, and you know all of those things and uh, and so that is like one half of it. Um, the other half is figuring out capacity overall. So like even in the absence of inequality, there's this capacity thing where theme parks have come into this moment in the sun. And the way that theme parks manage capacity right now when they're too crowded is they um, build giant rides. They spend $3 million on every ticket ride. And that is a red queen's race, right? If you build a $3 million ride, more people will come, not less. And much more people than will fit on your new $3 million ride. It doesn't matter what a people eater it is, you cannot load people and unload people fast enough to uh, accommodate them on your 300 person ride. And so you end up with this weird thing where you walk through, you know, California Adventure after the Cars Land was built, and it's like uh, it's like a bread line in war-torn Poland. Like there's people wrapped around the theme park three times over. You know, children begging their parents to to, to let them do something, anything, and the, the queue is so big that they don't fit in the show building. So they're standing in 150 degree weather, or if they're in Florida, 150 degree weather with 95 percent humidity, like you know, waiting for a stroke. Uh, in in this in in these queues, and so like it, it is not they're not going to be able to manage uh, um, capacity this way. The other problem with this capital expenditure heavy capacity is that the day that like theme parks go out of fashion, they're just going to be left with all of this like you know depreciated capex that they're not going to be able to do anything with. And so uh, you know the original sin of theme parks was that after Knott's Berry Farm hit the skids and decided to go with an all-you-can-eat one-price ticket instead of A through E tickets to go on the different rides. Uh, everybody had to follow suit, and the that's not a great experience for anyone. Like, one of the problems is that um, if you uh, if you go from ride to ride without a refractory period in between, they cease to be fun, right? Like, one of the things that makes rides fun is the texture. Uh, posing a ride against the boredom of the queue is, in fact, like part of the aesthetic effect of a ride. Like fundamentally, most most rides, especially thrill rides, are just like giant cocktail shakers you put humans in. Like 32 hours on one of those is not fun. <laughs> They're only fun in like six minute increments, right? And so uh, you have to figure out a way to like break up the day in in weird in you know a climate heavy world. You want to stick people in show buildings a lot uh, instead of in uh, walking around between show buildings. And you want to, more than anything, you want to be able to control the cadence that people move through parks. And the solutions that they built that aren't that aren't um, CapEx-oriented are surveillance-oriented. So you know, you're wearing surveillance bracelets that track you through the park, and they're like trying to do like real-time you know, understanding crowd dynamics. You can do this without surveillance, right? You can use things like LiDAR to do group level uh, crowd sensing where you can say, there are about X people in this, between the sensor and that sensor, and about X of them are adults and about X of them are kids. And you can derive a huge amount of, of information about them without knowing anything about them personally, just from knowing like those basic demographics. Like the incremental returns you get from spying on people all the time, by, and being able to say, oh, I think we should put like a pirate show there, because there's like a bunch of pirate fans and this little group of people move in some pirate actors. Those are like tiny returns you eke out compared to, uh, uh, you know, the cost of doing that, both the immediate cost and the long-term cost of the inevitable breach, where now you're like compiling these NSA-style dossiers on the richest, most litigious people in the world that are Sunday going to breach, right? It's just like it's a catastrophically terrible idea. So I think the future is like deploying experience-oriented games and shows, some of which involve robots, some of which involve humans, probably a blend of both, that are improv-oriented, and that can be dynamically deployed and redeployed to control the cadence of people as they move through parks and turn every square foot of a park into part of the experience. So it's not, it, it's it, like, to, I mean, it's such a gross analogy, but to like elevate the foreplay to the full meal, right? Like walking from ride to ride is not the boring part. Walking from ride to ride is an integral part. Make that walk as pleasurable as the ride but of a different nature, so that the textures rub up against each other uh, and, and preserve the, like, the refractory nature of the period between the ride without making it like actively unpleasant. 
I have given this a lot of thought. <laughs> I think you should write another book about it. <laughs> I feel like I, I now have a new research sort of uh, uh, more about amusement parks. Yeah, yeah, if you're studying not like narrative, non-traditional narrative, amusement parks are really important. Particularly because they think that they're making novels. They, all they talk about is story. It's ridiculous because like the, the best rides have no story, right? Like the, the, the and the rides that have stories are the, the worst rides. Like the Little Mermaid ride, it's a book report, not a ride. Uh, whereas like you know the the Snow White scary not scary adventure is like. You would you have no idea what happened in the story if that's your only experience of it, but you experience every one of the emotional beats through atmospheric elements that, through built environments, convey uh, a feeling rather than like going through the like tedious business of making you believe in imaginary people so that you can they can evince a feeling. It's it's really it's a really fruitful area of research. There's a guy named David Younger who's a PhD, uh, was just published on this. He's he's at Imaginary Company. That's a British guy. I think perhaps you can join me in thanking Cory Doctor for... Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast featuring Cory Doctorow and Dennis Tennant. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.